Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In a society that consumerizes rebellion against parents both as entertainment and an axiom of pop psychology, the basic premise of the New Testament, that the Son is disempowered because all glory and all power belong to his Father, is practically impossible to accept. In Matthew, when Jesus praises his Father, in the very content of his prayer, he underscores that his God is the Lord, both of the heavens and the earth, a span that imposes total dominion, stripping Jesus, and therefore all human beings, of power in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Still, in language reminiscent of 1 Corinthians, in Matthew chapter 11, we hear that all things are handed over to Jesus. But what does that power look like? What is the power that Jesus brought to Chorazin and Bethsaida if the outcome of his life is abject failure and defeat? How is this an easy yoke? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 290 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We emphasize frequently on the program when dealing with any of the Gospels, the primacy of the Father. And this may seem strange at times because the point is not emphasized in every verse, but it's a foundational principle of the biblical text. It's something that is assumed with every verse. It's something that Paul emphasizes in his letters and it plays out in the Gospels because at the heart of the biblical movement against imperial power is the critique, not just of the false gods that people worship, but of the relationship that the kings upon the earth claim with their false gods. The power comes from the deity. The kings always claim to be the son of the deity, and that relationship becomes the basis of their authority. Now, what's interesting about this matrix is that in the ancient Near East, it builds up the power of the one who holds the title son of the god or son of the gods. But in the New Testament, it disempowers Jesus who carries the title Son of Man. So there is this special relationship. It disempowers Jesus, but it also keeps everyone else out of that matrix so there's no power to spread around. We have to realize that when someone like Jesus 
who's just walking around and doesn't even have a house, let alone a palace. It seems nonsensical that someone like this would claim to have God as his father. If God's your father, how can he allow you to live like this? How can he allow you to be impoverished? How can he allow you to be without power? The ancient Near Eastern paradigm, which in fact is the same one we have today, would assume that the one who claims to be the son of the father would have power. I mean, when we say, God bless America, it's not because we have the biggest incarcerated population in the world. We say, God bless America, because we have a big army, because we can go into any country we want. It's because we can bomb any country we want. It's always linked with this kind of earthly power. Jesus claims the title of being the son of the father, but he doesn't claim the trappings that he should in earthly terms. There are no trappings of earthly power that would reflect the power of this kingdom. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Right at the outset, we see how this relationship works. Jesus is the representative of his Father, but ascribes all power to his Father. So unlike the other sons of the gods in the ancient world, he is the son of the God of Abraham, who is in fact powerless. And the way that he praises his Father in verse 25 alludes to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which ridicules the wise. This language of criticizing the wise, which in 1 Corinthians is especially anti-Sophist, but generally speaking anti-Hellenic, lifting up infants, those who in the eyes of the world are not wise, those who are not eloquent, lifting them up with the power of the gospel that he brought to these cities in the previous verses that was rejected. It is those who are upheld by God's teaching. And of course, the ones who are wise and intelligent are the ones who in fact hold the earthly power of the sons of the various gods of the ancient world. It's the ones who are on the inside who feel that they're in a position to judge. It's the ones who believe that all the truth has already been revealed to them. So then they can determine whether what Jesus says makes sense or doesn't make sense or whether we need to do something about it or don't need to do something about it. I mean, we can't forget that this falls on the heels of the last passage. If you only understood what I was saying, you would have repented a long time ago. And that cities much more wicked than you would have done so if they had seen and heard what I was preaching. So Jesus says now, I'm glad that only the children only the little ones understood what was going on, which implies you don't understand what's going on unless you're a child. This reiterates and underscores the idea that you have to be powerless if you're even going to understand what this means. You can't assume that you're in a position to judge and understand and then be the one who is repenting in sackcloth and ashes. The one who's repenting in sackcloth and ashes is recognizing their fallibility, their mortality, and their dependence on God so that they themselves can live. The human beings 
who actually hear this, the children who hear this, recognize that they do not sustain themselves, but are only sustained by the Father. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All human wisdom is founded on human strength. The people we respect, the people we admire, the people we look up to, the people we lift up, all of them are admired because in some way, shape, or form, they bolster their strength or bolster our strength or project strength. But in Isaiah, which is the basis for Paul's school in the New Testament, the only one who stands out is God the Father. The only one who has power is God the Father. Everyone else is flattened out. And this is what is pleasing in his sight, that his Messiah, the Son of Man, is a wimp. And those who accept the teaching through his Messiah, the true sons of the kingdom, are also wimps, because this fulfills Isaiah. Right, because either you have earthly power, and God shows that your earthly power can't save you, or you don't have earthly power, and God shows that you don't need the earthly power to be saved. The only way for this to work is to bow your knee to the Father. This is the importance of mentioning the wise. So it's good, interestingly, that the wise can't hear this. He's not saying it's too bad the wise can't hear this. He says it's good in the Father's sight that the wise can't hear this. So why would that be possible? Doesn't the Father want everybody to hear the teaching? Doesn't the Father want everyone to be a part of it? Of course he does. Of course he wants everyone to be a part of the kingdom. However, he needs to show that he is the only king of this kingdom. He's not going to have a discussion about maybe you should run things like this. No, God is the only one who holds wisdom. The person who thinks he has wisdom is blind to the truth. And the person who recognizes that they can't see the truth have an opportunity to accept this teaching and accept this gospel. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Please do not make a mystery out of something that is straightforward in verse 27. Jesus is saying, My Father is the King. He appointed me as his Messiah and adopted me as his son, he saw me just as I saw you, a slave in the marketplace. And I am the only one who has a relationship with him. I am the only one who knows him. So even though I'm powerless, because he knows me and appoints me as his Messiah, I am the broker of his power. And that power is manifest. That power is uncovered. That power is revealed. The word in Greek is apokalypto, you know, the apocalypse of his teaching. That power is opened up through Jesus. So we are now hearing exactly what the power that was preached and rejected in those cities was. Remember, it's not about miracles. The, the namis that was mentioned last week is what is being revealed. It's the will of the Father, the teaching the content of the discourse between the Father and the Son, which we are excluded from, except through the teaching that is shared with us. Human beings can't understand this because human beings are trapped by their biology. They're trapped by 
honor. They're trapped by strength. They're trapped by might. They're trapped by power because they're programmed in a certain way by the way the world works and by their own biology. Because Jesus has submitted completely to his father, he's no longer trapped. He's no longer destined by this teaching of the world. He's the only one who can fully embrace this assumption that complete submission to the teaching of the Father can reveal true wisdom. It's like you said, Father, it's not about the miracles. The miracles just show that God can do what he wants. But when you say, ooh, ah, God can do what he wants, heal my friend, and then he doesn't heal your friend, you say, well, I guess God can't do whatever he wants. No, God can't do everything you want him to. <laughs> God's going to do what he wants to do. And maybe it's God's goodwill not to heal your friend. Now, when the scribes and the Pharisees take this teaching of the Old Testament and wield it, they wield it as their power in the flesh, which becomes a heavy burden. Because the lie that the Torah is your protein shake is the mechanism of the power of the institution of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's why in this next section, Matthew draws on the terminology of Paul's letters when he talks about the yoke, the burden of the law. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your life. The psihi is your life, your breathing, you're alive, sometimes translated as soul. But the point here in verse 28 and 29 is that because Jesus takes no power and simply conveys the power manifest in his Father's instruction, his teaching is not a burden and not an enslavement to the flesh. His teaching is not a protein shake to build you up with the wise. His teaching is a teaching that can animate the works of infants to manifest God's power to the glory of God and not to the glory of human flesh. And it's important, Father, that you read these two verses together because there's this paradox inherent here. So, I will give you rest, followed immediately by, take my yoke upon you. Wait, how is that possible? Like, oh, I mean, if I tell my kids, oh, I'll let you take a break, come mow the lawn. They'll say, well, that doesn't sound like a break, Papa. <laughs> that sounds like work. So how is Jesus saying that this is work and rest? To understand meek and lowly in heart, it doesn't mean that he's gentle and kind. Meek and lowly of heart means he's not in it for his ego. Lowly of heart means obedient. Lowly of heart is the opposite of proud. Your boss at work gives you work because he has something to prove. He has to show his boss that he's getting work done, that he knows how to handle people. Jesus has got nothing to prove. Jesus doesn't need you. So Jesus is going to give you only the work that you need in order to understand this teaching, the work that's needed in order to become wise, the teaching and the work that's needed for salvation. That's all he's going to give you. When Jesus says to take on his yoke, it's to further his teaching, but he's not going to whip you because he's had a bad day. 
The only time he's going to whip you is so that you do the work that it takes to put aside your ego, to put aside your biology, to put aside your understanding so that you realize that the work is for the Father. And when you understand this, and God doesn't heal your friend, you understand that the yoke is still light, even though it appears to be a heavy burden, you can still rest in the fact that this is all according to God's will. These are Pauline terms. He's referring to Galatians. So when we talk about him being gentle and humble, and we talk about a light yoke, which we'll hear in verse 30, we're talking about the law of Christ. When you transition from understanding the Torah in terms of the power of the religious adherent to understanding it in terms of the law of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the teaching of the love of neighbor, when that becomes your reference and all power is ascribed to the Father, the fruit of that instruction is gentleness and humility. It's light in that sense, but obviously the love of neighbor leads to the cross, which in human terms is not a light yoke to carry, but it's a much lighter yoke than slaving for Laban for umpteen years because you're interested in proving the might of your own biceps because that slavery leads nowhere. It's futile. This is also related to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where God is going to take out your stony heart and replace it with a living heart to put the law on your heart. This is the thing. The only time even that Jesus struggled is when it was his will versus God's will and he had to do his father's will. That's the only time he struggled. That was the only time he had to do the really hard work. And that's when he was sweating bullets. The yoke is light when you have no other desire but to do the will of God. When you have no other desire than to love your neighbor and to treat your neighbor correctly, when all other desire is eliminated, there's no more work to be done. You're just living a life of duty to God. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the yoke is still the yoke of Scripture, but if Scripture is understood correctly, the burden of one's own power is removed. And at the same time, you are no longer enslaved to anyone seeking those ends. You become free, just as Jesus is free before his executioner, who seems to hold power over him only because the Father allows it. It's light in that sense. However, there is a price that is paid. There is a cost that is extracted, but because that cost pertains to the everlasting throne of the kingdom, it's not in vain and is therefore easy and light. It's not a heavy burden because in the long game, you don't lose. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.